All right, this morning we're going to be studying out of the book of Genesis chapter 6. So if you would please turn in your Bibles over to Genesis chapter 6. That's what we'll be covering this morning. And uh, I'd like to open up with actually a New Testament verse because it's really encouraging and kind of leads us into our Bible study. It's Romans 15.4, which basically says, For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we, through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. What a great verse, right? Whatever things are written before, well, we are going way back. Book of Genesis, book of beginnings, right? And they're written for our learning. So today we're going to be studying some, some things that uh, for some of you will be a review. For some of you it might be a little bit new. Uh, but through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, we might have hope. I think that we live in troublesome times. I think that we truly do live in what is referred to as the days of Noah, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. We're going to address that today. So what a great verse, and uh, it's really good for us to be able to look back upon the lives of men and women that are outlined within the Bible, and that we can see how they interact with God, how God interacted with them, what pleases God, what displeases God. And we see incredible grace and mercy. I think of the woman caught in adultery in the very act, and how Jesus dealt with this poor, precious woman. He didn't condemn her. He forgave her. That's the gracious God that we serve. What a glorious thing that we have. So we're going to be looking into the life of Noah. Now, Noah's life is covered really from 6 to chapter 9 and then a little bit into chapter 10. We don't have time to cover all that. So hopefully this will stimulate you to want to study the rest of Noah's life. Uh, but we'll be looking at chapter 6. Chapter 5 is, a, is a, a chapter of genealogies. And within it, it starts with the family of Adam. So we start from Adam, and we get a series of names of the offspring leading up to Noah. And within it, it's really detailed. So those of you who like math, you can do some calculations to figure out how old people were, and, and you can do your little charts, because I'm fascinated with this kind of stuff. I always wanted to know, hey, was, was Noah alive when Adam was alive? Did their lives ever intersect? Well, they didn't. However, Noah's dad, a guy named Lamech, his life intersected with Adam's life. That's quite fascinating, isn't it? Lamech would have been 56 years old when Adam died. So it's quite possible that there could have been, and I'm not saying there is because we don't know. We're not back there. There could have been an a, a interactive relationship between Lamech and Adam. And then I also thought, well, was Abraham alive at the same time that Noah was alive? Once again, he wasn't. However, Noah's son Shem was alive during the time of Abraham. Abraham would have been 50 years old when Shem uh, uh, had died. So we have this interaction. We could have had very good, close, personal connection of testimony of the work of God, the creation of God, the, the flood, all of that stuff directly to these people fascinates me. This particular period of time we're going to be studying is called the Andalusian period. And I know without a shadow of a doubt that each and every one of you here know exactly what that means. <laughs> of course, yeah, a guy nodded and said, yeah, I know, of course, yeah. You know what it means? Simply the world before the flood. The pre-flood world is called the Andalusian period is what it was. And oftentimes theologians will come up with these words and, you know, we all scratch our head and say, I guess I need to read a book on Andalusian period, right? No, it's simply a pre-flood and there's great information out there about this time period. So in uh, verse 32, it says, Noah was 500 years old and he begot Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Those are the three sons that he had. Now, <clears throat> chapter 6 
begins. And we can break this chapter up basically into two halves. First portion of the chapter is God's observation of the condition of the world and his proclamation of judgment against it. The second half of the chapter is the call of Noah, where he calls Noah. Now, none of us here have the same exact call as Noah. We don't have that call. I don't. A very unique call for a unique period of time, and this man was chosen by God. However, each and every one of us who are a born-again Christian, you have a call upon your life. God has a plan for you. You're not here just to exist. You're here to worship the Lord. You're here to serve the Lord, love the Lord, but he also wants to include you in the work that he wants to do in proclaiming the gospel to this lost and dying community. That's it. We're witnesses. Much in the same way as as Noah was a witness in his world, we are a witness to those that are around us in the neighborhoods we live, in you know the, the work vocation. You go out into work, certainly with your family, as Noah was with his sons and daughter-in-laws. But witnessing isn't always an activity that we do. When I remember as a young Christian, I used to think, well, yeah, you got to go out witnessing. But the thing is, is that when Jesus said, you know, in Acts chapter uh, 2, he said, and you shall be witnesses unto me. Witnesses, you are a witness. If you have a testimony that I'm a born-again Christian, you're a witness for Christ because of what God has done in your life and how he's transformed your life from what you were to what you are now. So we're all called to be witnesses. We all have that. And all of us can be used of God, and it's very exciting, you know, and the thing is, is oftentimes we get really kind of caught up in, well, the greater works versus the lesser of works. Well, guess what? God is not interested in the quantity of work that you do. It's not about how much I do. It's about did I do what he gave me to do? Was I faithful with the gifts and talents that God gave? Fairly simple for us. And our rewards will be based upon that. You know, I often thought, oh, gosh, you know, think about it. You know, we're, we're at the, the judgment seat of Christ, the bema seat of Christ, which really is an award ceremony. It's not really being judged. We're not going to be judged for our sins. We're not the great white throne judgment, unless you're, you're here and you don't know the Lord. That's you. But for the rest of us, we go before the judgment seat of Christ, and our works will be tried by fire, and we'll see what is left over, those things that were done with the right motive of love, you know, of love for God and love for those around him. And I, I pictured in my mind at times, like, man, knowing my luck, I'm going to be right behind Billy Graham bummer, man. All of a sudden, all this stuff, and then here I come. Here you go. But that's a misconception. We look at these people, and we oftentimes put them on pedestals saying they do the great work, and we should esteem them for the work's sake that they've done. But God, again, has looks at us and said, hey, I've given you something. Were you faithful to what I gave you? That's where we should just really anchor in and be rejoiceful and just know that God wants to use us in his special, unique way like he did Noah. It's really, really, really awesome. All right, so chapter... Six begins with corruption from sin and how wicked the inhabitants of the earth have become and God's pending judgment of the earth. So let's read the first four verses, and then we're going to go back and we'll kind of talk through them uh, as we move through the text. Chapter 6, verse 1. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. There were giants on the earth in those days. And also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, those were mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Well, there's a lot in the text, so let's just take the first observation point, which is 
multiplication of population upon the earth. Mass multiplication of population. Well, and it shouldn't surprise us that that was going to take place because back then, lifespans, and again, read you know, chapter 5 for those genealogies, was very long. People lived from 700 to 900 years old. And you can imagine as they begin to have children and multiply and, you know, parents wouldn't die off, grandparents wouldn't die off, great-grandparents. I mean, so you can see population explosion would happen. The earth truly was filled with people. So this was happening. But God identified a problem, a fairly significant and serious problem. There was a problem of ungodly intermarriage between, a phrase we have here in this text, the sons of God and the daughters of men. There are two prevailing interpretations of this. One has lesser significance and has really been kind of, you know, diffused. But some would say, well, this, you know, the, the sons of God were referring to the, the godly line of Seth and the ungodly line of Cain, you know. And so that one's been well documented. It's like, no, that's not it at all. Because if you look deeper into the original text here in the Hebrew as it's written, it's Bene Elohim. Sons of God. Now, that phrase is used exactly as it is written here in Genesis chapter 6, three other times within the scripture. All of those are found in the book of Job. Job 1 6, 2 1, and 38 7. Right there. Clear references and inferences to created angelic beings is what they are. It's very clear. And there are a few other abstractions from that that obviously clearly indicate that the sons of God is a reference to fallen angels. Take it a step further because we have New Testament that helps support that view. In the book of Jude, which is only a one-chapter book, in the book of Jude, verse 6, tells us of the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own habitation. They did not keep their proper domain. They left their own habitation. It would appear that much in the same way as God granted unto Adam and us, Free will. Free will. He also gave free will to the angels. Well, we know that through the fall of Lucifer, who is Satan, and the drawing away of one-third of the angels to follow after him. There's obviously some free will that's associated with the angels as well. So whatever boundaries that God had established for the angels, they violated. For it says again in Jude, the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own habitation. And in verse 7, it tells us that they sinned in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh. So here in Genesis 6, as in Sodom and Gomorrah, there was unnatural sexual union that was taking place. I do want to read to you also uh, out of 2 Peter, where this issue is also addressed. It says in 2 Peter chapter 4, or excuse me, chapter 2, verse 4, for if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, the Diluvian period, right? But saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. So we see that these angels obviously were judged as well, and they were, they're chained up. They're awaiting a pending judgment that we know is yet future that we read about in the book of Revelation. Pretty significant. Now, many tried to explain what did this look like. Was it men who were demon-possessed? Was it angels who took on some kind of a human form? 
You know, there's speculation. Really, we don't know. The text really doesn't give us enough evidence to tell us exactly how. However, when I look at it and it says left their proper domain and left their own habitation, certainly they could have done something strange. Well, you know, it was an ungodly union and an ungodly intermarriage with angels, angelic creatures. Now, um, what we should kind of consider is what Jesus also said within the New Testament. Some of you guys are thinking, well, wait a minute. Did not Jesus, when he was debating with the Sadducees, who were the aristocratic uh, political party of Israel, you had the Pharisees, who were the very strict, you know, observance to the law. They were the Pharisee means separated ones. They separated themselves to the strict observance of the law. The Sadducees were the liberal group, right? And the Sadducees, they didn't believe in resurrection. They didn't believe in it. So they thought they would test Jesus in something that we find in Deuteronomy called the Leverite marriage, wherein if a man had a wife and he did not have a child, a male child by this wife, then the brother would be obligated, if he died, then the brother would be obligated to take her as wife, father a child for the posterity of his dead brother. Leverite, you know, we don't do that today, but you know what? So they go through there, and they just, they just, they add on and add on. Okay, if a woman, you know, married, and this brother died, and they go up to seven brothers. Well, whose wife will she be in the resurrection, is what they ask him. My question is, is what was she feeding these guys? <laughs> By the time you got to brother number five, say, dude, watch the food. Something funky going on there. Anyways, all that aside, to simply say this, Jesus said, you don't understand the scriptures, but it says there will be no marriage in, you know, in heaven. There's, there will be no given in marriage nor marriage in heaven, but we will be like the angels in heaven. Okay, So the angels in heaven who are in their proper domain with God, there's no marriage with them. So this text obviously leads us to believe that this is a, a, a ungodly thing going on here, that they left their domain. Now, when we hear there will be no marriage or given a marriage in heaven, some of you here probably think, yes. <laughs> Sorry, I had to say it. And then there's those of you here who's like, oh, bummer, man. Listen, marriage can be heaven on earth, but it also can be difficult. It's a gift of God, right? Rejoice in the wife of your youth, fellas. It's a gift from the Lord, gift from the Lord. All right, so that's that. This verse refers to heaven, not the fallen angels or demons that we see here in the text. Now, in verse 2, it says that they took wives unto themselves. Now, another uh, potential reason this was happening other than their sinful, lustful things is that could this be a satanic plan to pollute the gene pool? Because you remember, in the fall, you know, we had the fall of man by the eating of the forbidden fruit. God said, of all the trees you may freely eat, but the tree, the, the tree that's in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it. The day you eat it, you shall surely die. Well, they sinned. They ate of the fruit. And then consequential judgments came from that. Consequential judgments. To the serpent, Satan, to the woman, and also to the man. So to the serpent, what God had declared is he said that, I will put enmity between your seed and the seed of the woman. Interesting phrase. Interesting phrase. We'll get back to that in a second. Then God goes on and says that he shall bruise your heel, but, uh, or you shall bruise his heel, I mean the serpent will bruise the heel, but you, he shall crush your head. So we know that Jesus was crucified on the cross, the bruising of the heel, but we know that Satan was defeated upon the cross, says in Peter. 
that he was put to an open spectacle. Jesus defeated death upon the cross. Satan is a defeated foe. We fight from a position of victory. It's been won. We just have to endure through our walk and our race. So is it possible that these demonic beings are polluting the gene pool? Because if you give this a certain amount of time, death would eventually happen to each person who was born. They could pollute the whole gene pool, and this prophecy of the Messiah, the Redeemer, coming through to redeem the world could be thwarted. Certainly is a plausible explanation for part of that. Now, it never says in Scripture that angels are sexless. It doesn't. In fact, when you study angels, uh, they are referred to in the masculine form always. Now, um, the seed of the woman, real quick. I went to school like you. Did you all learn about the birds and the bees, right? And we're always told that women have eggs, which they do. Biologically, women have eggs, and the man is the one with the seed. So when it says the seed of the woman, it speaks specifically of the Messiah because we know that Jesus was a virgin birth from Mother Mary. Excellent prophecy there. So in verses 3 and 4, what we have is it talks about the giants that are on the earth and that God declares that he is going to put an end to things and that there will be 120 years. See, God responds to this. He is not going to allow this rebellion to go on forever. He steps in. So there is a point of no return. Boom. That's it. We're done. Hey, I'm a parent, raised three sons. They were perfect their whole lives. Never had a problem. Yeah, you know that's not true. Of course we're going to have issues working with our kids, right? So what do we do? We warn them. So I know, don't do this. No, don't do this. Don't do this. If you do this, it's going to happen. Finally, he gets to the point, he's like, that's it. Done. We put an end to it. Discipline comes. Some kind of consequential, you know, chastisement may come to them. Same thing with God. He's saying, that's it. We're done. Reminds me of Pharaoh during that time period where the Israelites, the Hebrews, were in bondage in Egypt. And God heard their cry and sent them the deliverer Moses and his brother Aaron to come and deliver God's people out of that bondage. And then we know of the, the ten different plagues that happened. And as Moses went and communicated with Aaron to Pharaoh, the text tells us that Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Each time they'd come in, Pharaoh kept hardening his heart. Then all of a sudden there's a shift if you read the text, where it no longer says Pharaoh hardened his heart, it says God hardened his heart. God hardened his heart. So there is a point when you've gone too far. I don't know what that point is, but I have enough of the fear of the Lord to recognize that that's out there, and I don't want to get close to that edge. You know, the best time to repent of something when you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit is tomorrow, next week, next month, now. That's right. When you feel the conviction of the Lord upon you, hey, repent. Turn from that. Turn from those things. It's, you know, no one's promised tomorrow, are we not? Now, God also makes mention here. He says, my spirit shall not strive with man forever. He is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. So there are several different uh, interpretations of what that could be. The first one, which is a little bit more of an older interpretation, has to do with lifespan. Now, if you do, you know, go beyond Genesis and keep reading, you will notice as we get into the genealogies further into the Old Testament that the lifespan post-flood radically changed. No one was living seven, eight, nine hundred years. They changed. In fact, I did a little bit of an Internet search. I was curious um, about uh, lifespans in our present day. Who's the oldest living person? 
It just so happened on today.com, I found a post on May 17th, the Guinness Book of World Record confirmed that they have found a woman, an Italian woman, and she's 116 years old. That's old. I know it's rare to hear of somebody even making it to 100 in our day. So this lifespan thing certainly has some plausibility. Again, back into the early text of creation, it's very evident and clear that there was some kind of a water canopy over us, over the earth back then at that time. Hard for me to really think that through. And What did it look like? We all think of clouds, right? But oftentimes when you read it, it says that there's the sun and there's the moon, sun rule by day, moon rule by night, and the stars, and you should be able to see them, so a filtering system that you could see through. Really kind of cool. I really wonder what that looked like. Nonetheless, it would have filtered the ultraviolet radiation that comes to us through the sun, our sun. We all know what UV rays do, right? We, we live here in the valley of the sun. We know. You leave stuff out in the sun long enough, and sure enough, it is going to be absolutely destroyed, yeah, including us. We were once these really nice, tight, plump-looking grapes, and now we're a bunch of raisins. It's true. When we're in our teens and our 20s, we lay out in the sun to get a tan. And now I'm looking at my, my age spots and my wrinkles. I said, like, what was I thinking? Stay away from that thing, right? All right, all that to be said, it is plausible that this could be a lifespan. There are uh, Bible teachers that at one point said it was lifespan. Another point later in their teaching ministry changed this being the other interpretation, which is judgment. Judgment. All right. He's saying that there will be 120 years. Now, I lean more toward that particular view uh, about judgment. Okay, chapter 5, the very end, it declares that Noah was 500 years old and begot his sons. Then we have this chapter here that we're studying. Then you get into chapter 7. When the flood actually happens, it says there right in the text that Noah was 600 years old when the flood came. So simple math says, well, there's 100 years. Well, it's not 120 years, but... The people in Answers in Genesis, a great ministry that does great creation research. In fact, they have a place back in the Midwest, uh, the, I think it's Creation Institute, where they have the uh, a creation museum, and they're building an ark. They have built the ark. I think it opens up this summer, I think. I just should have checked that before I, I declare it. But they're building a replica of the ark of Noah. Great, great thing. Anyways, they had gone through some some complicated calculations about genealogies and ages and believe that it's 120 years and it's a judgment. Many people believe that as well. Nonetheless, one fact we know is true. Judgment is coming, and it is a period of time. Whether it's 100 years or 120 years, judgment's coming. But think about this, though. God is going to, I mean, he could have just, we're done now. But God is going to do what? He's going to give time and space 120 years is a lot of time for men to repent. It's a lot of time. Noah becomes his witness because we're going to see soon the call of Noah, and Noah faithfully obeys the call. And, hey, building an ark, you think that's going to draw some attention? Yes, it is. You bet it's going to draw some attention. People are going to be talking about it. People are going to be asking him questions. And as we read in that Second Peter passage, he became a preacher of righteousness. We'll talk more about that a little later. Nonetheless, God gives time and space to repent. Now, an application for us on this is that even in our own personal lives, God is a God of love, and God long suffers with us. See, if sometimes we blow it, don't we? I mean, look, we have a sin nature, and none of us in this room are perfected. We're still working out our salvation with fear and trembling. We're still you know, dealing with temptation and sin and things like that. But sometimes we purposely say, you know, I'm going to do this. And you do it. 
And all of a sudden, nothing happens. Nothing happens. She's like, wow. So let us not mistake the fact that God didn't deal with you as soon as you did it as God's permission to say, it's okay. It's not. That's just, you're in that period of time of God's long suffering where he's given you and me time and space to repent before he steps in and brings in some kind of consequential discipline to us to draw us back to him. We see that throughout the scriptures. Now, verse 4 is kind of a, another controversial verse because it says that there were giants in the earth in those days, giants. Now, for those of you who may have looked into this a little bit deeper and done some study on this, that particular word giant is a Hebrew word called Nephilim. Nephilim. These were giants. They are the abnormal kind of superhuman offspring from the ungodly intermarriage of the fallen angels and the daughters of men. They, they are produced. They're called Nephilim. Now, no one really honestly knows exactly what they are. They really don't. They're, again, they're, the, the evidence that we have is in the scriptures, and there's really not much evidence beyond that. There is a lot of evidence out there, but the old English word Nephilim really means fallen, fallen ones, or the, the English word that we got from England, old English. They call them fellers. And then I know we use that, hey, fella, you know, hey, fellers. But really, the fellers, by definition, back in old English was bullies. These are not good people. They're not nice fellas. Then in verses 5 through 7, we see, Then the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing, and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. Whoops, that's verse 7. How about we read verse 5? That would be helpful, wouldn't it? Verse 5, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on earth, and that he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing, and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. Now that's a tough passage for sure. First thing that we observe is that he says that the thoughts and tents of the heart of man were evil continually. God's grieved over this very thing. We have a totally depraved society, totally corrupted by sin. We have a verse in Jeremiah 17, 10 that says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So that didn't apply to me. It applies to all of you. <laughs> the heart is deceitful. See, sometimes we think, well, I'm good. I'm okay. Isn't it interesting, the sin that you might struggle with? doesn't look nearly as bad on you as when you see it in somebody else's life. And their life, ooh, that's bad. But when you're dealing, it's like, well, you know what? It's not so bad. No, the heart is deceitfully wicked above all else. Who can know it? Pretty scary things, right? Surely it is. That is us. See, we all know what's in there. We know what's inside of each one and every one of us. I look out over this crowd, and you guys look great, you know? You're all dressed up for church. You look wonderful on the outer man, the outer woman. I don't know what's going on in your heart. I'm called to walk in love, to believe the best in you, and to love you. Judgment is reserved for God, but God knows what's inside those hearts. Even between husbands and wives, we don't fully know what's exactly inside those hearts, right? You know, I thought of this, this idea kind of came to me that if we were all sitting here, and you know those, um, those bubble balloons that pop up over people's head and they, they write comments in them? What if some of the things that are in our heart, bubble balloons popped up, and all of a sudden, bloop, there it was. People next to me going, oh, and then they'd, what's above me? Oh, no, I bet you this place would empty out pretty fast. <laughs> True. 
There's evil in our hearts. We have to recognize that. We have to face that fact. It's true. God sees the heart. And yet even though he sees what's in there, he loves you and he wants to redeem us. He says, I want to forgive you. I'm going to, you know, you're born again, you know, the inner man, the inner woman. But the body of death is still with it. We still have the flesh. The Bible says, Jesus says, the flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of earth. That's why it's imperative that we, we shed this thing eventually. It's coming. It's coming. All right, so it's at this point I think we should really consider what Jesus said about this in the New Testament. We just read the times of Noah, right? God's observation and what's going on there. It would be good for us to observe what Jesus had said in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 7. He says, as the days of Noah were, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. Hmm. So evidence of the imminent return of Jesus... Is he close? Let's examine it. Let's look at, we'll compare it to the days of Noah. First of all, population explosion. All right. Do we have that going on here today? You bet we do. I, um, after the flood, um, I, I looked up a population chart, and this particular one here uh, starts at AD 1. And do you know from AD 1 to 1800 years, the year 1800? took us that long, 1,800 years, to get to our first billion people post-flood. Then from 1,800 to 1930, which is only 130 years, we got our second million. Then from 1930 to 1960, only 30 years, we got to our third million. 1960 to 74, which is 14 years, 4 million. 74 to 87, 5 million. 87 to 99, 6 million, and on it goes. We are in that period of time where population explodes. We live in those times. It's happening. We have so many billions of people on the planet that are reproducing at a rate, and the population is exploding. So that certainly fits the, the days of Noah. How about, how about sexual perversion? I, someone laughed out there. Yeah, I mean, it's obvious, right? What's the issue that we're all kind of dealing with right now? If I say the word bathrooms... Yeah, a lot of you know exactly what I'm talking about. We are now in the day where we are providing bathrooms for transgendered people. What? You know, that's only one of many different sexual perversions that are going on in our society. There's abhorrent sexual perversion like none other, and that bar morality is just going further and further down, not to even say of the sex trade that's going on where young women are being kidnapped and just being abused. And I don't even want to go there with children. We know we certainly see that in our day as well. Demonic activity increasing. You know, the Bible says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual wicked in the heavenly realm. There's stuff going on in the, in, the, in the spiritual realm that we don't fully see. Demonic activity definitely on the rise. You certainly hear about it in other countries. It is happening in our country as well. It's, it's, it's there. Prayer at the Capitol. Here in Phoenix, Arizona, I heard on the radio, and I tell you what, it grieved me that the invocation before our, our uh, Arizona Senate would get together was being hijacked because the, the, the Church of Satan wanted to have one of their ministers give the invocation. Right here in Phoenix. So our Senate said no. In fact, because of that, you know, politically correct and everything's got to be equal, they just said, no, we're not doing the invocations. Crazy stuff. It's happening in our midst. Evil continually in the heart of man. That's certainly there. 
You know, every time you turn on the news or you read news, and I mean, we are in a technology age. I mean, you, most of us have these smartphones and stuff comes to us rapid. We're hearing everything. There's an incredible amount of evil that's in the heart of man that's being manifested day in, day out that we see. And how about the earth filled with violence? I can't pass that one by by not mentioning ISIS. I remember when that first came about a year and a half, two years ago. I remember being sick to my stomach hearing about mass beheadings of people, Christians too, over in that region, just being slaughtered, mass beheadings. And it just sickened me. And now we're a year and a half, two years into it. I hope, I hope that we're not getting desensitized to it. It's still going on. So we hear, oh, oh, another beheading. That's just what ISIS do. God forbid, Lord, move upon our hearts to recognize we are living in the, the days of Noah, which means the eminent return of Christ is near. I'm not a date setter. I'm not one of those kind of guys, but there's nothing hindering from Jesus coming for his church any moment. Nothing prophetic that has to happen for Jesus to come for his church. Be ready, church. Be ready. That's really the exhortation after that. So the sorrowful heart of God over the condition of man. And it's a tough passage because the word repent is translated in English, you know, there that God repented. Well, he doesn't repent like a man repents. It's not that type of repentance. Numbers 23:19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and he will not do? Or has he spoken and he will not make good? See, we're limited in our language to fully describe the actions of God. God does not repent like a man repents. In, in our terms, like repent for us is to change of mind and change of direction. It's repentance for you and I. But in Malachi 3.6, it says, 3.6, For I am the Lord, I do not change. God is sovereign. He's on a throne. God knew about this all the way from the very beginning. And I will defer to Romans 11.33. It says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. You know, if we could fully comprehend the glory and the magnitude and the understanding of God, he wouldn't be much of a God to serve, would he? I mean, gosh, man, tonight, go outside when that moon comes up. Just marvel at the creation of God. Blows my mind. Sometimes we get out to the wilderness, Lisa and I, I mean, where there's no more light pollution like we have here in the Phoenix Metro or the Tucson Metro. You can't see it. When I was a kid in Tucson, you used to be able to look up and go, the Milky Way, it's magnificent. And the Bible says that God measures the universe with the span of his hand. That's it. He's, some of these things are just beyond our comprehension. But God is not unfeeling. It affects him in words which can't be truly described in our limited human language. Sorrowful for the corruption and the suffering condition. This is not at all the way God intended man to live. In bondage to sin, corruption, perversion, it grieves the very heart of God in whom we serve. You know, he could have just put an end to this before it gets worse. It was on its way to getting worse and worse and worse. So he does declare total destruction. Someone said, that's not fair. Well, what do you mean it's not fair? Do you realize from the fall of Adam, every one of us are under the curse of death? Instead of dying off one by one by one, which is going to happen to all of us, I mean, we're all, we're all there. You know, the, deaths, the, the, the stats on death are staggering. Did you know that every one of every one will die? <laughs> we're, yeah, we're, we're, we're seriously. I mean, we're, we're headed in that direction. Look, church, you know that. You've had beloved brothers and sisters in Christ in your fellowship who were here last year and they're not here with us this morning. God bless them. They graduated. They're with the Lord. But it's happening. 
So who are we to tell God what he can and cannot do and how he's going to do it? All at once or one by one? Verse 8 is the transitional point, and this is where we really get into the, the beauty of this text. It says, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Thus the title of our message, Finding Grace. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. No person can stand right before God apart from the grace of God. We can't. We need the grace of God in our lives. The Bible declares in Romans chapter 3, it says that there's none righteous, no, not one. No one, it says it right there in the text, none seeks after God. goes on and says a little later, all we like sheep have gone astray, each one to our own way. That's us. We're rebellious by nature against God. Grace, God's unmerited, meaning we can't earn it, unearned favor upon us is granted to you and I. See, with grace, what we're, you know, if you want to apply it to us presently, we're getting what we don't deserve. What are we getting? Through grace of God, we're getting forgiveness of our sins. We're passing from judgment and death to life and glory. We get the gift of eternal life. We're going to live forever, not in this state, but in the kingdom that's yet to come. That's what we get by we're getting that. Now, mercy is another word closely associated with it. When you're merciful, what does that mean? You're not getting what you do deserve. I deserve judgment. God's being merciful. He's being gracious, giving you what you don't deserve, forgiveness of sin and eternal life in heaven. But he's also not judging you for your sins because Jesus judged well, on the cross, paid the penalty for our sins. So in Ephesians, we have a really cool passage. It's Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone would boast. For by grace you have been saved. Saved from what? Judgment. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Faith, okay. That means there's a part I play in this to a degree. Yes, it's belief. Do you believe? Now, we're not talking about just an intellectual assent to certain facts that we read in scriptures. Because is it true, yes or no, the demons believe in God? Yes, they do. Demons tremble. Yes, someone quoted. Demons tremble at the name of Jesus. Are they going to heaven? No. So you know what? It's deeper than just a simple assenting of truth. There is a, I believe what I believe that I've altered my whole life around what I believe. My life has changed according to what I believe. I live by faith. I believe in the Son of God. I believe that he came. I believe that he was born of a virgin. I believe he lived a sinless life. I believe that he died a sinner's death upon the cross as a substitution for my sins and the sins of the world. I trust that. I'm going to heaven because of that. Not because of my righteousness or anything I've done, but simply and solely because of what Jesus did. That is what we have. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is a gift of God, not of works as anyone would boast. Man, you know, we don't have to work for it. Folks, look, we do what we do because we're moved, we're compelled by God because God has showered us with such love. I want to serve God because he loves me, not because I have to. It's a devotion of service. It's not a duty of service. I don't have to, but I want to because he loved me. He's gracious. Beautiful. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. I could look out here and you know what? Take the name Noah out of there. Put your name in there. Troy found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Oh, thank you, God. Thank you. 
thank you. And then it says in verse 9, and this is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. And Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The genealogy of Noah. And it says, Noah was a just man. Take note. He was just. He did what was right in the sight of God. But it doesn't say he was sinless. He came from the same Adam, you know, fallen nature. He had the same nature. He was a just man, but not a sinless man. And he said he's perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. Perfect in his generation, believe that he didn't have that polluted bloodline from the, you know, sons of God interacting with the daughters of men. And then he says uh, that Noah walked with God. He walked with God. Do you know you can walk with God today? You can. We can. The Bible's pretty clear about that. In fact, Jesus, in John chapter 17, verse 3, he says, and this is eternal life. I'm going to stop right there. Jesus is out declaring, this is eternal life. Ears ought to perk right up. And this is what he says right after that. That they may know the one true living God and the Son, Jesus Christ, in whom he sent. Period. Knowing God. Enter a relationship with him. Cry out to him. The Bible says, draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. We all have a choice here. You know what? We have a choice every day. You get up. Every day your feet hit the ground, you have a choice. Do I want to walk close to God? Do I want to draw near to God? Or do I want to live a life for myself after the pleasures of the world? And I'm not saying God doesn't want us to enjoy the pleasures of life. Of course he does. Of course he does. But are we acknowledging God along the way? That's really the thing. Noah walked with God. That's a, such a cool, cool statement there. And then he talks about his three sons. Later in chapter 10, you get what's called the Table of Nations, and it's the genealogy from Shem, Ham, and Japheth of all the different people groups that would become the modern world and countries of which we live in today. Great study, fascinating study. Then it goes on to say in verses 11 through 13, the earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted its way on the earth. And God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the, great, uh, them with the earth. Kind of a restatement of what we already covered in verses 7. So let's go ahead and just keep moving on. He just says it's, it's destruction is coming. Verses 14 through 18, let's read those. Make, for your, make yourself an ark of gopher wood and make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. So now he's going to give him some instruction. He tells him to build the ark before he tells him how he's going to destroy the world. But he tells him to make it out of gopher work, and he says, cover the inside and outside with pitch. Pitch is a petroleum-based product. And did you know that the Rockefeller family used this Bible verse, knowing that this was an area of the Middle East that this was taking place? That's what They're the ones who went out there and discovered all the oil out there. Kind of a cool story. Check that one out. They got rich, by the way. Imagine that. And he says, this is how you should make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, the width 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark, and you shall finish it to a cubit from above, and set the door of the ark in its side. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. And behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh, 
in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wives, and your sons' wives with you. That's the declaration. So he gives them specific instructions on how to build the ark. He gives them dimensions. Now, he uses this term cubit. Uh, we don't use that using of measure today, right? We're, you know, we're inches and feet and yards, and you know, we really should be on the metric system. It's a better system. Ah, I forget all that. But anyways, a cubit. A cubit is from the tip of my finger here to the bottom of my elbow. That would be a cubit. You know, okay? So you can tell that you know, amongst us that we have variation of that size, but the average is about 18 inches. So taking the 18 inches and extrapolating that out, we find that the arc would have been about 450 feet long, by 75 feet wide and by 45 feet tall. Now, to get a better visual on that, consider a football field. We all know what those things look like, right? So the length would be about a football field and a half. One and a half football field. Pretty big. And its width would be about half of the football field in width. And its height would be about a four and a half story building. Pretty tall. So you can do mathematical equations and come up with some cubic space inside the ark. People have done that. So he does instruct him. He said, you shall make, you shall build, you shall finish. There is a, you know, there's a work involved in the work of ministry. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, instruction to uh, pastors, overseers, it says, he who, can, who desires the work of a bishop or overseer desires a good work. Hey, the work of ministry, you know, it's not for lazy people. We're to be diligent and faithful about the work of ministry that God's entrusted to us. You know, some people think, God, oh, you got it easy. <laughs> you work one day a week on Sunday. Well, Brett works Saturday night too. So do I, by the way. Not, there's all kinds of stuff going on during the week. Boy, I can't tell you the amount of hats that we have to wear oftentimes in the work of ministry. But anyways, it's a, it's a work. And he put himself to diligence in doing the work. Then he, just, he declares how the destruction will come by flood. In Genesis chapter 2, very clearly God says that he had not caused it to rain upon the earth, that the earth was to be watered through the mist that would come up through the ground. They'd never seen rain, never seen a flood. That's pretty interesting, right? See, we already know, so we're like, okay, floods, we've seen them, we get flash floods here. It's kind of crazy. But for him, there's an element of faith involved by Noah to believe that God is going to do something that he has never seen takes a great act of faith, does it not? And then he talks about, and we're going we're to use that as application points at the end. Then he talks about um, the covenant that he established with Noah. Covenant's not a word that we use a lot in our society today, covenant, making a covenant with somebody. Did you know that the marriage relationship that you're in is a covenant? Yeah, it is. Yeah, a lot of you guys know that. It's a covenant between the man, the woman, and God. And it's established through verbal, you know? I know we get a marriage license. That's for the state, for public recordation and acknowledgement. But, hey, Jesus said your yes is yes, your no, you know. Vows, man, woman, presence of God, presence of witnesses, covenant. See, God's making a covenant. He's making a promise to Noah. Okay? We use contracts today, right? Why do we use a contract? We don't trust each other. Hey, man, I don't trust you. Here's a contract. Sign here. Press hard. Five copies. <laughs> Contracts are mutual distrust. Covenant is trust. And I can go on in that, but he's making this covenant. And the sign of this covenant that he makes with Noah, and what is this covenant? The covenant simply states that God said, I am not going to destroy the entire earth again by flood. It didn't say anything about fire. <laughs> Definitely flood, okay? Now, we have local floods, but we will not have a global flood. And he set a sign in the heavens, which is the rainbow, 
which is the sign and symbol of God's covenant that he made, the Noah covenant. And we live here, we see those, man. It's great. Sometimes those monsoons come rolling in, and they're pretty ferocious. The lightning, it's like, woo. And afterwards, the sun shines, and the rainbow, and like, wow. Next time you see when, break out in praise. It's God's sign of God's covenant. All right. So then we find out that he tells them in verses 19. We'll close out the chapter here. Uh, and, every th- and every living thing of the flesh you shall bring two of every sort into the ark. So now he's going to do preservation, preservation of man, Noah, and his family, and preservation of the animal kingdom. He says, every living thing is fresh, uh, <clears throat> two of every sort into the ark, and keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds of their kind, of animals after their kind, and of every creeping thing of the earth after its kind, two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. So God's going to draw them. He didn't have to go fetch them and trap them. They're going to be drawn by God. And you shall take for yourself of all the food that is eaten, and you shall, uh, and you shall gather it to yourselves, and you sh- it shall be food for you and for them. So we have two. And notice the phrase, after their kind. So this is an argument that you guys should be using to debate those that deal with evolution. You know, things reproduce after their kind. Um, and that's about all I want to get into because I'm running out of time. question a lot of people ask here is, well, wait a minute. What about the dinosaurs? Look, I've seen Jurassic Park. Those things are huge. they got to fit on the ark. Of course they could. Whoever said they had to go as full-grown adults? They can go as juveniles. They can go as little babies. They could fit. In fact... I mentioned the cubic space of the ark. Calculations have been done that the average size of a land animal, all of them from the big to the small, believe it or not, is a little bit smaller than a sheep. That's the average size. Okay? So with that, you say, all right, there's 34,000 to 36,000 different species on the planet times two. You do the cubic math of that. It would only fill half of the ark doing that mathematical equation. So therefore, there'd be plenty of room for... Food, water, supplies, so on and so forth. It all fits. God has it covered. So, yes, they fit on there. Last verse. Thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him to do, so he did. What a glorious passage. We see the obedience. Thus Noah did. He believed God. He believed his word. We don't see any complaining. You read through the remainder of chapter 7. There's no complaining. There's no wavering. He got busy. He took the instruction from God, and he went after it. Never seen rain, never seen floods. Final companion verses that uh, pertain to this that you guys will know quite well, and that is from Hebrews chapter 11. And starting in verse 6, it says, But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things, warned of things not yet seen, Moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. So, our life is a life of faith. We're to to walk by faith and not by sight. For without faith, it says it's impossible to please God. Impossible. We can't please God apart from faith. Thus, the study of the men and women of the Bible is so important to show us how it is that we're to live. We're to be men and women of faith. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a warder to those who diligently seek him. And then he uses Noah as that example of that thing. Okay, so now Noah's out there building this ark. 
Answers in Genesis believes it took them about 75 to 80 years to build this thing. That's a long time. And can you imagine people coming up, hey, Noah, what you doing, man? Hey, I'm building this ark. It's a boat. It's going to float on water. Why? Well, God told me that he's going to destroy the entire earth by flood. There's flood coming. It's going to rain. They'd walk away. Cuckoo, cuckoo. <laughs> they didn't believe. He was a preacher of righteousness, it says. Now you see what I'm talking about as far as the call of God to each of us as individuals. Hey, the vast majority of us in this room, we've been saved. We have been saved. We have a message like that. We are the ones that live right. We are the ones that are going to proclaim to our world. Judgment's coming. It's coming. The greatest witness that we have of, the, of God is the fact that your life was transformed. If you made a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ and your life hadn't changed, you're still living that same old lifestyle, still going out and doing the same old sinful things, I'd question whether or not that was real. But the fact that we have transformed from our old to the new is evidence that God is doing a transforming work here in our midst. And thus we see Noah as a great example of a man of faith. We see it in Abraham too. Abraham was told by God, you're going to have descendants more than the stars of heaven. And when he told him that promise, Abraham was childless. And God said, he's, and Abraham said, I have no heir in my house other than Eleazar and his kid. He said, come outside. He said, look above. You see all those stars? You're going to have descendants more than the stars of heaven. And it says there that Abraham believed in the Lord and it was counted to him for righteousness. Didn't even have a kid. Not yet. Applications, very quickly. We have the word of God and we need to live different than the world. We have the promises and the commands of God. The commands of God are not there to hinder your fun. Sometimes people think, oh, God's so restrictive, all these commandments. You kidding me? He didn't say, ooh, that looks like fun. I think I'm going to call that sin. <laughs> he didn't do that. He called it sin because it's devastating. It has consequences. If you go to this activity, though it might be pleasurable for a season, it's going to cause devastation in your life. The Bible says there's pleasure and sin for a season. Think that through. Pleasure and sin for a season. If sin was not enjoyable, no one would be doing it. I mean, we got to be real here, right? So there is some pleasure in it, but yet the devastating consequences are horrific. God puts those commandments up to there because he loves us. He loves us. Children's ministry full of kids. One of you guys has a four-year-old, and if uh, one of your, I was to walk a four-year-old across the street, say there was a McDonald's, the Golden Arches, here you go. I'm going to take your kid over there and get him a Big Mac. When I got to the corner of that street, Four-year-old kid, what do you think I'm going to tell him? Hold my hand. <laughs> I'm going to hang on to him, you know. Look both ways. Don't cross till I tell you. In essence, I am giving him commandments. For what purpose? To protect him. That's why we have the commandments of God. They're not there to hinder your life. They're there to protect your life. That's why God gives them there. What is your ark? What is it that God's called you to, to do? Maybe some of you here, God's given you a real commandment to do something, and you're just struggling. You're, you're wavering. Trust him by faith. I really hope today you've been encouraged that you might be able to uh, do the impossible, walk by faith and not by sight. What has God called you to do that he's burning in your heart, that you're fearful of taking on the project because you're fearful of what man may think or failure? You know what? Dynamic group here. <laughs> Your lives are far from over. God's call on, on Moses came at 80 years old. 
A lot can be done in a short period of time. God is not done with this. God wants to do a great and awesome work in our midst. I hope we're encouraged to go out and be those witnesses for Christ. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do thank you.